0: Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So, if you had margarita-fueled twister on your bingo card, you
1: win. (laughs) Yes. Thanks to Avril Harley at the Naval War College. It was an Uh, unlikely spot
0: to fill, but we filled. it. That was...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it, it, That was uh, that's amazing news that the uh, president of the Naval War College has been sidelined, and the also the the current strategy forum, which is a big annual uh, strategic forum at the Naval War College. In fact, uh, my deputy Bill Bray was uh, getting ready to fly up there to be a participant in the forum uh, this week, and then we got word that um, there's been a change of leadership at the Naval War College. Admiral Harley is no longer the president, and the current strategy forum has been uh, postponed until further notice, and so we'll, you know, kind of wait and see what comes in that front and um, who will be the next president of the War College and, uh, you know, when they reschedule that. But yeah, it was uh, sort of shaking, breaking news this morning here uh, at USNI. And of course, the
0: Naval Institute uh, cares a lot. The Naval War College was created from a Proceedings Magazine article written by Stephen Luce in one of the early issues of Proceedings Magazine in the late 1800s. Stephen Luce was the first president ever of the Naval War College. And that is where we started this heritage of outcomes and consequences with the Independent Forum. So, you know from that moment on we've been involved in various ways you went up there last year you were uh, which event did you go to yeah the to?
1: international sea power symposium right. I was and, and, inv- invited by admiral harley which i appreciated i met him then and uh, yeah that was a great event it was in september with all the international chiefs of naval operation and hopefully we get an invite to uh, to send somebody back up there this year
0: and we do the sponsored student program up there with the international students so we have a lot of there are cousins of ours. So, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, obviously, this sort of publicity isn't great, um, but uh, I'm sure because it's an academic institution, it's bigger than one guy, and they'll press on, and uh, it'll have little or no bearing on what the students are, uh, are doing coming into the next academic year. Um, other happenings over uh, – which body of water did the Chancellorville incident happen? Yeah, out,
1: out in the Pacific. Uh, okay. So the Russian – Udaloi class destroyer, the Admiral Vinogradov, uh, approached uh, unsafely on the USS Chancellorsville uh, cruiser, which was conducting flight operations with its helicopter. Uh, this was uh, last uh, week, I think it was on Thursday, and USNI News had a story on it. And, and a has, video. It has video, the Navy released, Seventh Fleet released video taken by the Chancellorsville as the uh, Russian ship is approaching. And as it just continues to get closer and closer, all the way up to within 50 to 100 feet of the Chancellorsville, Chancellorsville, we know, did a, an all back emergency maneuver to avoid a collision. Uh, and Chancellorsville was the stand on vessel. Uh, so this, I'm certain will be uh, brought up in this year's incidents at sea conversation. It's uh, every, at least every year, if not uh, twice a year conversation with the Russians dating back to the Cold War. Uh, and the, you know, the Russians clearly uh, have acted unsafely. Uh, but that seems to be in their writ right now. From their president on down is do provocative things and anger the U.S. Navy. And let's see if we can get into a collision. They seem to be uh, hell bent on uh, acting Unsafely at sea, uh, in a way that will, you know, gain a lot of attention for them. So
0: we've seen some of this with the Black Sea ops. We've seen know, it close flybys, yep, flybys, and, flybys other, and sort of intercepts. It feels cat and mouse, cold warish. You know, we used to do this with Krivak uh, and Sovremenny, and uh, you know, it's reminiscent of the Cold War era in the Med and North Atlantic. But when it gets to be that close, and you're hazarding the lives of sailors, its its it becomes very serious very quickly. So hopefully this won't reach the point where we actually have a collision or an airplane flies into the bridge of a ship inadvertently, um, but uh, it does bear watching. And uh, as you've suggested, there seems to be this Russian provocative element. Um, not sure what they want the end state to be, not sure what the uh, reason is behind this, but uh, certainly keeping a close eye on it. And, and us News has been covering this uh, quite extensively.
1: In the good news category uh, for the Naval Institute, I, I pointed out at our department head meeting this morning with our CEO, Admiral Daly, that across all of our websites uh, for the first nine days of June, our uh, page view metrics are way up. Google Analytics allows us to see how many people are viewing which articles and how long they stay on them and read them and convert to another article. And uh, double digit growth over the first uh, nine days of May, which was double digit growth. The whole month month of May was double digit improvement over April, which was also up over the month of March. And as everyone knows, we got our new website at the end of February, early March. So that new website has really powered. Uh, you know, the number of page views, the number of people that are reading our content online, including on their mobile devices. The new website looks much better uh, on your mobile device, on your iPhone, your smartphone, than the old website did for Proceedings and Naval History Magazine. And so it's really nice to see that growth. And, you know, your, part of your job now as a marketing guy is to turn that growth into. Uh, advertising, you know, so the online advertising piece, and so that's a big part of what we're working on, uh, you know, week in and week out.
0: So obviously, our our first and foremost focus is on uh, readership and membership, and and uh, so to your point, the the the. UX is uh, gorgeous, and uh, we're height- heartened to see that, uh, that engagement by the audience. Um, and we would also point out that uh, don't forget the two blogs, the History blog and the USNI blog. There's a very cool item written by one of our interns now about his recommendation is that the Naval Academy get rid of parades, which is causing quite a bit of discussion. It's a very provocative piece in keeping with the mission of the Naval Institute. Um, So as we've already mentioned on the podcast in previous weeks, we have our interns here and they're turning to and uh, writing great stuff. And that'll primarily show up on our blog. So when you check out our suite of properties, do not forget the two blogs, the Naval History and the USNI blog. So it's awesome when the data supports the effort. And as you've pointed out, Bill, we're seeing great growth. So thanks to our readers, our members, thanks for reading, sharing, posting, including in emails, all the way that the digital space works, and look for much more uh, going forward. It's the 21st century Naval Institute, and we're we're on the step. Yeah, definitely
1: not your father's Naval it's Institute. Not your father's yeah. Naval Institute. So, yeah. Well, let's get to our guest today, and and actually, he can um, provide a little bit of insights on uh, U.S.-Russia relations as we were just talking about, and uh, particularly how the Russian Navy and and uh, Naval Infantry is, is acting uh, on the world stage right now. So joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., from the Center for New American Studies is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Smith, U.S. Marine Corps. He's the author of an article in the June issue of Proceedings, on, starts on pages 18 and 19, called Corvette Carriers, a New Littoral Warfare Strategy. Uh, Colin, thanks for joining us on the Proceedings podcast today.
2: Thank you, Bill and Ward, for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here.
1: So we were talking
0: before we went on air about your experience in Russia, uh, including your unceremonious departure. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. Uh, I, I'm, I was the former Marine attache in Moscow. Uh, I was in country for about five months uh, when uh, myself and along with uh, several other diplomatic colleagues were diplomatically expelled, uh, persona non grata, following uh, those script ball poisoning in the UK.
0: So how does that go down? Um, was your family over there with you?
2: They, they were. My my wife was there, and we had a a, a cat with us. Um, both our kids were grown, so thankfully they didn't have to go through the the turmoil of visa delays, finally getting there, and then after only five months, uh, turning right around and come back. So that was five months uh, of the, a how
0: many month tour? Twenty four, thirty six month tour.
2: Starting initial is a is a two months. Er, er, I'm sorry, a two year tour. Uh, with the, I call it the option for a third, depending on how things are going and and the needs of the service.
0: Okay, and so you got word how that it was time to leave.
2: So the, the after uh, we had expelled sixty Russian diplomats uh, from here in the U.S., uh, both here in Washington D.C. and in New York, we kind of knew something was going to come, and uh, about less than four or five days afterwards. Uh, the State Department or the embassy got notice from Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The ambassador got called in. He got handed a list, and the list had 60 names, basically saying these 60 diplomats must leave, and they have seven days to do it. Re- really, was about six days uh, to back everything all up and, and get out. And I, I was number 40 on the list.
1: So uh, some of our listeners have heard me talk a little bit about how uh, during my Navy career, uh, from 2004 to 2006, I was the naval attache in Moscow. And, uh, I remember, Colin, I, 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 was not PNG'd and sent home early, but I was delayed getting there. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, this is the, the essence of being a pawn in, in a, you know, strategic relationship between two, you know, massive countries. Right. So my story was on the front end before I went there. Uh, I was waiting for my visa. And um, the U.S. uh, national security team had denied visas for a couple of Russians who were coming to work at the Russian uh, military mission at the U.N. in in New York. And it was just, you know, two years after 9-11 and the FBI said, hey, you know, we think these two Russians are – Uh, are spies, they're KGB or FSB or GRU guys. And we don't have the, in the in the post 9-11 period where we're following all these leads for counterterrorism, we don't have the assets to put on them to watch them and surveil them in New York. And so we're not going to give them uh, visas. And so there was this long visa hold for these Russians. And as a result of that, they started putting Americans in a holding pattern. I was one of them. And then finally the U.S. said, nyet, to the, to the Russians. And we were expecting that they were going to say no to, you know, to two of ours, including me. Uh, and so the, um, while we were waiting for that no from the Russian government, uh, I actually started training in Lithuanian language and they were going to divert me to go to Lithuania to be the defense attache in Lithuania. And then all of a sudden. Uh, what happened is the Russian naval attaché, who was a one-star admiral in Washington, got pulled over for his second DUI, and he got PNG'd. And the the U.S. defense attaché in in Moscow said to the Russian foreign ministry and defense ministry, "If you want to get a replacement for Admiral Soins, I forget what his name was, then you better re- you better approve the visa for this guy, Commander Hamlet." And the next day a visa came for me, which was not expected. And suddenly I'm on my way to Moscow and it all worked out. But wow. but I remember there were, and there was, uh, while I was there, um there was a young army major who had been, who was probably 13, 14 months into what would have been for him a 36 month tour. And he got PNG'd for the same kind of thing that you did, Colin, where it's like, okay, there's. There's a tit for tat and it's happening and it's at the strategic level. And, you know, there's a list and somebody's name gets put on it and that's it. There's no, as an individual, you don't get to say, but, but my kids are in school or I, you know, this is a, uh, this is a career wicket for me. I have got to complete this tour. There's, there's no reclama, right? You are, you are a pawn and it's, you know, time to clear the decks. The pawns are gone and we're, you know, get, get new ones on the, on the chessboard, but that's going to take months or years to do. And it's just like, okay, so you've been here five months, two years, doesn't matter. You're going home and uh, time to find new orders for you. Yeah, the it's the nature of the so business. So the other thing right?
0: that people might not think about, Colin, is you spent uh, at least a year at Defense Language uh, uh, Institute, right, um, learning Russian. Uh, so uh, that's another year baked in there. So what did that do to your career path? Did it, did it accelerate the, something or did, did it cost you in some way?
2: I, I don't think it necessarily cost me. I, I'd actually – this was to be my second attaché billet. I was the SDO dat in Riga, Latvia from 2009 to 2011. Um, and so this was post-battalion command. Uh, but those those uh, chess games that you mentioned, Bill, about visas were definitely alive and well. We were We were delayed getting in by almost four months, and of the nine of us that were supposed to go, only three of us ended up getting visas to go. So in some ways, I, w- I was thankful and lucky that I did get to go uh, for that five months and, and do that tremendous mission there. I uh, got to see quite a bit of Russia in a short period of time, so I like to just think I was, I was doing my job. Uh, and they said, "No, nope, let's get rid of the Marine." <laughs>
0: <laughs> so my
2: dad was a Marine. We
0: he, we lived in Holland for three years. He was the assistant naval attache in the Hague. But you don't think about this part of the Navy experience, the Navy Marine Corps experience, the attache world yeah. uh, as a as a front you know line sort of thing. Right, right. But it's it's a, fascinating. It's you know? a niche. It's a, it's a once niche. in a
1: lifetime for most of us. It's a yeah. one once in a lifetime, once in a career opportunity. And but when you do it. <laughs> You know, yeah, this is something that you look
0: back on fondly, and you know it just can open the
1: aperture of your own personal life in ways that are amazing. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, let's get to your article, Colin. And, and um, so, the, there's a the deck of this on page 19. With the renewal of great power competition, the Navy and Marine Corps team must employ ships that can threaten adversaries in their home waters. And so, the the crux of your argument is that. The U- the the U.S. Navy Marine Corps team could buy some small patrol craft, missile patrol craft, and put them on big carriers that could uh, that could sail across the ocean, carrying four, five, six small missile combatant ships, uh, launch them out to go do their missions, kind of like a you know a torpedo boats in, in PT boats in World War II have them go do their lethal mission at high speed, stealthily, come back to that mothership, and then move overnight to some other place. How did you get the idea for this? And how does this sink in with how the Marine Corps is thinking about expeditionary advanced base operations and littoral operations in a contested environment?
2: Thanks, Bill. You're you're right with your explanation, kind of spot on. I'd I'd say The inspiration was twofold. One, sitting here at at CNAS, uh, we've got a lot of discussion, of great power competition. Bridge Colby, who's the director of our defense department, was one of the key authors of the National Defense Strategy that really looks at Russia and China as our our near-peer competitors. And when you you just sit, you know, listening to events here, both at CNAS and other think tanks, and and the challenges that the Navy is looking at, especially in the South China Sea— in discussions of well, our carriers going to be survivable. Do you really want to have a big capital ship in there? Same thing in the Gulf when you look at the missile corvettes that the Iranians have, and then you know the shenanigans that the Russians are playing in the Black Sea, uh, and being a, a Baltic guy, looking at you know, how would you better impact the Baltics, but you don't. You're worried about that capital ship as uh, anti-ship missiles have become much more lethal, and the A2AD ring has grown. Well, how do you how do you confront that? And not so much during time of, of war, which as I read a lot of the comments and proceedings. It was fascinating to read the, the two sides of the arguments that, that followed the article is part of it's about deterrence. How do we maintain freedom of the seas in, say, the South China Sea? Let's pick our big adversaries. What can we do there to help protect the Filipinos, the Vietnamese, the fishing boats, uh, but not have just one destroyer, one cruiser going through? And that's have something that's equitable. And the Pegasus class, yeah, I remember studies from the Academy, you know, high speed, very lethal. But in the end, we only had six of them, and they spent most of their time in Key West because we really didn't have a way to transit the oceans with them. They're, they're just small craft, and they don't do well going over big oceans. And so I kind of took that along with the Marine Corps looking at sea basing and how, how do we have a way to offload our MPF ships at greater distance knowing that there's the A280 threat, and still be able to get Marines to a conflict area. And then I thought of, well, we don't have a way to escort that either. Uh, and I happened to be in Norway as part of a, a different project. I got a tour of one of the, uh, their, their Corvettes while I was there in Bergen. And kind of the whole thing kind of came together as they started describing to me the capabilities of their ship and how stealth it was and radar cross-section of a rowboat, although I don't know how many rowboats do 60 knots. Uh, But their ability to kind of hide if they need to, uh, knowing they don't necessarily have a pure air defense capability, but they certainly have naval strike missiles and 76mm Auto things that we're familiar with. And that's kind of what gave me the concept is, well, how do we get them there? And then kind of just out of nowhere, Corvette carriers kind of popped into my head. Uh, And the fact that we're divesting some of our amphibs, some of the older amphibs that have bigger well decks, and even some of the newer amphibs for the Marine Corps don't have well decks, imagine that. And so the, the, those two concepts kind of merged. And then, you know, how can we then put a threat back to our adversaries? And so these small corvettes really is more of a deterrence. Um, you know, there's good debate going on online on on how survivable they'd be if, 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 if missiles really, truly started flying.
0: So in the article, you mentioned that the requirement is a CNO Zoom Alt Era 1. And as you've mentioned, the Pegasus class was was the first manifestation of that requirement. They only built six. Um, why, why did they only build six? And I, you've mentioned the ineffectiveness was a function of the absence of a carrier um, that could get them to theater. But w- what was the problem there um, in, in terms of only building six?
2: Doing the research for it, it was a joint project. It was a NATO project. So Germany was on board, Italy us to build 30 plus a fleet really to counter russia especially in and around the european theater Um, and as the first ones got built uh when when the admiral retired as cno there just there was a, a sea change uh no pun intended to go back to the big ships when you no longer had the weight of the cno to look at the smaller ships and so in the end only six were built they, they had a same mothership concept designed to support them, not so much to get them from A to B, but to support them out at sea. And we were left with six. Uh, I, I think they tried to, they did a transit once to Europe, but in the end wound up just doing counter drug and addiction and other things in and around uh, the Americas uh, because they, they, small corvettes aren't really good at transiting the oceans. Yeah, so, uh, so I think it was a combination of, especially when the Admiral left. Uh, as CNO.
0: So we'll remind the audience that the Pegasus class were the hydrofoils, uh, pretty pretty cool looking. I remember when I was yep. a rag instructor at VF one hundred and one, we used to do ops down in Key West, and there would be that's where they were home ported. Yeah, PHMs, PHMs, right? and I guess yeah. they did. P- uh, Colin, Pete
1: Daly, our CEO, was uh, a JO, one of his. Really? Uh, I don't know if he was XO, but he was a JO on one of the Pegasus class in in Key West as an early SWOTS tour.
0: So did they did they do counter drug ops down there? What that's was it what, they were doing? That's
1: what they were used for. At as the Cold War sort of wound down, and they didn't have a, a need for them in the in the Cold War. In in the littorals uh, up you know, close to the Soviet Union or in the Mediterranean or in the, uh, as you mentioned, the Baltic, Colin, uh, they brought them down to Key West and they used them for counter drug ops because they could go fast. They were 50-knot ships up on hydrofoils, right? They were, uh, they had a gun, uh, you know, a 76-millimeter automolera, I think, was the gun. And they had harpoon, uh, you know, anti-ship cruise missiles. And so they could pull up next to one of these go-fast, uh, you know— uh, Miami Vice kind of boats, and they could say, hey, you know, pull over or we're going to shoot your engine out, and, and then they could, and it was used as a as a drug interdiction operations through the 90s, and then they finally got rid of them, I think, in the in the late 90s.
0: And then we segue from Pegasus to LCS. Where does LCS not meet uh, the, this requirement?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not a surface warfare officer by trade to uh, just in looking and talking to a lot of other SWOs, where LCS was initially designed at the time frame, as Bill said, at the height of you know, 2005, 2006, relations with Russia were good. No one was thinking about China. Uh, LCS would be a great platform to do cooperation missions off the coast of Africa in the littoral, so to speak, but not as a, a, a full on combatant. Uh, and it's just, its speed isn't necessarily going to be an escort with carriers. Uh, it's n- not loaded with a lot of missiles, so you, you're not looking at it to maybe double as an anti air platform or a ballistic missile defense platform uh, that we're looking for now. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of talk online, there's a, a lot of points back and forth, uh, but my sense talking to uh, some of the SWOs is it. It's still in search of that 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 good mission, uh, but it's still one ship and then it's a pretty expensive ship. So if your thought process is if you can see it, you can kill it with a missile. Uh, do you want a hundred million dollar platform or less uh, with half a dozen sailors at risk? Or do you want a one X billion dollar platform uh, at risk that doesn't move as fast?
0: Well, you're not a SWO, but you do play one within the pages of Proceedings (laughs) Magazine. I do. (laughs) To quote quote the article, to quote you, built to be a modular multi-role platform, the LCS lacks capabilities in almost every aspect the Navy would want. It does not have the legs to augment or enhance a carrier battle group, and it cannot provide air defense to augment amphibious ships or in a standalone role. It is not yet configured to be a threatening anti-ship or anti-submarine warfare plat- platform. It was a concept designed to provide comfort and aid to emerging nations with the U.S. flag flying off the coast, but it serves little functional purpose against today's emerging threats. So, you know, it's, that's a pretty uh, comprehensive, maybe it overstates to say indictment, but that, that obviously s- does frame the fact that LCS is not what you're talking about yeah, in and- terms of this need
1: the uh, the the picture that we have got on the opener on page eighteen nineteen of your article is a is a Norwegian skilled class, um, uh, Corvette, right? So this is much smaller than a littoral combat ship. much smaller crew, probably in the less than twenty men or men and women. Um, it's uh, it's heavily armed for a small boat. The uh, Norwegians use these up and down their coast in the fjords. I mean, it is truly a coastal combatant. Uh, to operate and and defend, uh, you know, the Norwegian littorals, uh, or to operate in the Baltics, and that's the kind of thing that you're uh, advocating here for. Is a is a a ship that's small enough that it can fit four or five, maybe six of them on. You you name a couple of different platforms that could possibly play mothership. Can talk a bit about that if you would, Colin.
2: But there's a couple of big – I believe they're they're M-class ships that we use uh, to transit. There's a picture later in the article of us uh, moving – uh, mine warfare platforms around uh, you can see them when we've we've had uh, ships that were damaged that they, they can come in they ballast down you float the ship on and, then, and you, you you pick them back up and then you can transit the oceans with them because they're a much more stable platform to transit the oceans uh, and what kind of gave me the idea was like I said the, the Marine Corps is looking to do the same thing with sea basing is that you can you can ballast down they' semi- submersible ships is the, is the category. And now you can bring LCUs in, you can load up LCUs, you can you can load up the LCACs to put Marine Corps equipment onto the connector ships and then go in. And so I thought, well, if you can ballast down to bring in an LCU or one of our amphibs to ballast down, why couldn't you do the same thing to bring in a missile corvette? Uh, and so initially, if we wanted the capability quickly, you could put two of them into the back of existing platforms that we have. And then if the Navy really thought this might be something for the future, then whether it's a purpose, uh, purposely built carrier where you're hollowing out one of the more modern tankers or you're looking at something that's already in existence – um, either, either one of those was the idea of how to get it to and from, and the crew can live on it. Maybe you're launching one or two, just you know, th- think of almost an aircraft carrier launching the planes as required. But if you need to launch the whole squadron. Uh, for a mission, then, then you launch the whole, the whole squadron. But it, it could do a host of, of missions, not just in escorting. Uh, you, you could, because of its, its stealth and speed, you could use it for special operators. The Navy could launch the Mantis unmanned vehicle from it, some other things. I think there's a wide variety of things that could be used. And even Proceedings had a bunch of articles last year, which kind of fueled my fire to write this on, on the need for a Corvette. And that was coming from the SWO community. Now there were, there were those that said, you know, Corvettes aren't survivable, and how do you get them there? The Navy's not capable of maintaining a small ship. I I don't like arguments that say services can't do something. We can do something. We just gotta to want to have the desire to do it and and the mission to do it.
0: Well, survivability is always the knock on small ships, right? Um, so I think the counter to that is speed and and numbers, and and so. Bill and I have spoken before on the show about the Hubei class and the fact that the Chinese have how many uh, hundreds of these things? I think it's 80-something. Yeah, and and we're struggling to make onesies and twosies with the LCS class that is the only thing that we have that's even close to analogous uh, of the Hubei. Um, so we're already losing the numbers game. Um, so um, how quickly do you think, Colin, we could get – Let's say they green light this idea. How how quickly would this this hit the fleet?
2: I'm not sure I can project numbers. I, you know, the Norwegians, I believe, have five or six of them. And there's several other allied countries that, that do build Corvettes. So I think the first thing was Navy would have to decide, yes, this is something we want to do, and then figure out if if the carrier Corvette type concept is what they're looking at, then what platform would best work with that. And one of the reasons I went with the Skilled was it its draft is only 0.8 meters. So you're not worried about a V-hold type ship that you would have to ballast down considerably. You know, the ships were pretty much in mounts you know as to, to be stabilized whereas something that's a little bit flatter i think of you know the the Lcax that the navy already has type ship uh, that could go onto a flat bottom of a of a carrier and, and be more stable uh, than say a V hull type ship uh, i think the the speed budget being what it is is really up to the desires of the navy and where they they'd want to they'd want to put their focus the problem is that that would mean cutting something figuring out what it is they they don't want to build and um, i don't envy that decision
0: well, you mentioned in the article that the skillald can go sixty knots that's that's moving out um so and you show we have the picture of the turn uh in the article and it's carrying four uh mine countermeasure ships. so let's imagine that that's the multiple right four to one if we're countering eighty just as a starting point, eighty in the enemy's uh multiply uh, multiples. Uh, then, you know, again, I was told there would be no math. Um, we would need uh, twenty uh, of these these kind of ships, these the carriers. Uh, do we have that? I mean, obviously we can dip into the merchant marine uh, fleet, but is that are these around in numbers?
2: they're they're not 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 to my knowledge Fort. the there's there's a few that are out there. Uh, you know the what led me to this project was actually an allied looking at allies to augment our maritime. Uh, shipping in a time of crisis so maritime shipping is something that we're as a nation we've got our own shortages on so I, i'm not sure how quickly it could be implemented using the carriers which is why i kind of pointed towards uh the older lsd class that we do have that are some of them are mothballed some of them are ending the their service life as an amphibious ship to go out with a mu arg uh, but they could fit two of them in the back that that doesn't get you a squadron Uh, but at least gets you something to give a deterrence or or, or pose a problem that our adversaries haven't had to worry about. And that is a fast missile type boat that has, you know, eight anti-ship, you know, naval strike missiles on it. Uh, And it might, again, my first thought is, you know, how do we deter our adversaries in those areas so that we can maintain our freedom of the seas? I think if you start looking at theory of victory and how would we defeat an all out shooting war, that uh, There's a whole new calculus that comes into uh, both air and just sheer, sheer missiles, because uh, from what I've seen in various war games, you know, we start, we, we, our thought process is keeping capital ships at a further distance, which then doesn't do anything for our allies that are in within those, those range rings.
1: Yeah, another, another part that comes into this, and I've seen, you know, you mentioned in here a, a couple of articles that have been written in proceedings and on proceedings online, uh, this one. Uh, By lieutenants Colin Bernard and Ian Sundstrom uh, back last year in November, they said, don't buy a new U.S. patrol craft, buy a German one. And so they were they were both of them had spent some time with the German Navy on an exchange they saw some of these German patrol craft, some of them the German Navy is getting rid of. And they said, hey, this is the kind of thing that the U.S. Navy sh- should have to operate in places like the Baltic or the South China Sea or the Black Sea. Right. And you're you're making some of those arguments and building on some of those arguments. Um, Wayne Hughes, who a longtime proceedings author and author of Fleet Tactics, uh, you know, the godfather of naval tactics and you know, m- modern times. Uh, he's part of this uh, discussion often on these types of articles we he chimes in on our discuss platform. He's also written some things about this. Uh, he's a big proponent of not putting all our eggs in one basket to, you know, disperse the Navy using some smaller, you know, combatants like this. Uh, he talks a lot about sea denial. So if we get into a fighting war in the South China Sea, we may not be able to go for sea control at first, right? It may be a battle of sea denial where we're denying the, the Chinese, their objective to have overall control, sea control in the South China Sea. And, and I think that's where uh, some of your idea really plays into that. It's, it, you know, we're not going to have uh, control on an away game, at least at the start, if ever. But the ability to operate in and around the archipelago of the Philippines uh, operates from some of those forward sea bases, uh, you know, zip in and zip out and make the other guy worry about sea control, make the other guy worry about um, how much power he can exert over a, a given you know, place of water space. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting, it, it sort of flips on its head, this, you know, big Navy, large cruise, crew des, um, kind of construct where we're going to go into the South China sea with cruisers and destroyers Yeah, in an A2 AD environment early on. That's probably not going to be the game because who wants to lose a, you know, a $2 billion asset to a, a, a hypersonic missile coming in or, or multiples, uh, you know, particularly uh, you know in the early stages of a fight. So, have you heard anything from other Marines uh, who are working on the Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations? Uh, some of the folks down in the at Quantico, as because we know that the that the Marine Corps is really getting back to its naval roots right now, thinking about how it uh, plays into the, the Blue Green Team. What, what kinds of things are you hearing from your colleagues on on your ideas?
2: Well, I, th- I think the, the biggest thing that, that, that the, the few that I've heard of uh, with the article just, just coming out was the idea of having something, if you, if you were to go into even a, a semi-contested environment where you're trying to get Marines to an objective, is there's, there's nothing really to escort them a little bit closer to the shore with the A2AD threat. And so, having something that at least is potentially survivable, or can can maybe take out some anti-ship coastal missile batteries that are that are firing directly onto LCACs or the ACVs as they're trying to get to the objective, uh, they found very uh, you know excited about because there really isn't you know the only other thing we're doing is is calling in surface fires, but there's not a whole lot of surface fires left to call in, and the rest would be very expensive missiles going at at uh, you know, what might not be considered the most high value targets uh, from from the Navy side, uh, given all the other threats uh, that would maybe be opposed to uh, to that Marine force. So I, th- I think they like that. And I, I agree with your previous statement, Bill, that looking at how to challenge the adversaries, if you think of the Malacca Straits and the energy needs that China has is in an all-out kind of contest of wills, uh, you know, challenging their ability to get energy if the South China Sea maybe isn't feasible, but they still got to get, you know, oil and and other resources to the South China Sea where they can protect it. And so now when you're talking about in and around Singapore and the Malacca Straits and other areas, uh, these kinds of ships would certainly pose a challenge uh, to the the Chinese.
0: Well, I should know the answer to this, but do, how many LCS-class ships of, of both classes are we making uh, in the current program of record? Do we know? It's about 36. So 36. Um, and as we've stated, 36 that really don't meet this particular need, that aren't filling this requirement. You sum it up nicely in the end, Colin, when you say the concept of a Corvette carrier with multiple small attack craft directly aligns with the c operations latest strategy to keep pace with the technology and tactics of U.S. adversaries. So this is, you're not like blue skying this thing. This is in keeping with the current strategy. However, what you also point out is there's a gaping hole between that thesis and our current program of record in terms of the ships that we're building. So um, I, I think, as you mentioned, last year we Teed this up. I think a lot of what we were talking about is LCS isn't it. And then we tend to roll in on LCS for its programmatics, its acquisition missteps. But the thing we're not, the big picture issue is we have, to my eye, an obvious need. As we've described defense in depth, we're not in the literals in any meaningful way. Um, And so, what are we going to, what's it going to take, do you think, from your research to breakthrough and actually get this in the acquisition cycle to, to be turned into an RFP in the fit I
2: I think the biggest thing would th- the navy needs to you know look at their strategy and and is what they are procuring now in alignment with the national defense strategy and if if they think that is then you know then okay then Uh, The the people are just going to have to agree to disagree, and there's going to have to be some moderate – they're already talking about modifying the littoral combat ship so that it does have an anti-ship capability. They're already testing it right now. It's certainly not on the ships, but I think there's one right now that's already been doing sampling of shooting the naval strike missile from it. So that that does play into it. It still doesn't necessarily have a true anti-air defense capability for it, but that's certainly something that if there's a block two or block three that they can look to adjust to to meet these needs. Uh, the question's always going to be, but at, at what cost? Is it is it better to keep putting more things onto the littoral combat ship from whatever it was originally designed to at that cost, or is it maybe better to look at something something cheaper? But that's that's where the the Blue Water Navy folks are going to have to go back to the NDS and and figure out what how to meet that strategy.
1: So how fast is the LCS? I think it's down to about 38 knots. So the original RFP, I believe was 42 knots. And then uh, as they developed the ship, it became heavier and more expensive. And the propulsion system to get it to 42 knots was going to be awfully complex and, and very uh, expensive. And so they Slowly chipped away at that. And I think it's now in into the high thirties. Just the forty. Yeah, but but you know it can't go very far at high speed, right? I yeah. And it's it's like turning on your afterburners and your F-14. Your, yeah. You know the amount of loiter time you have at, at, at range goes way down right. as, you, as right. you start to burn the you know. And a Hubei,
0: bay. Do we know how fast those are?
1: Uh, the Hubeis are fifty knots plus. They're they're like trimaran kind of uh, a yeah. you know it's a fast it's a fast vessel. So
0: right? that seems you know again in terms of the return to peer conflict. Those are the variables we need to keep our eye on, right? Because when the bubble goes up, um, if you have a ship that's 10 knots faster and it, you they have twice the force multiple, um, you know, we got a problem right from the moment you push play. Um, so in accordance with the national defense strategy and the, and the, the, the plan, the CNO's uh, operational plan, I think Colin tees up a fantastic uh, question and a, uh, he well frames the problem here. So, Colin, I think we're all out of time for this uh, episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Where are you headed after the CNAS tour? Do
1: you know?
2: I, I do. I'm heading over to National Defense University uh, to work for the Capstone Program.
1: Okay. Great. So for our listeners who aren't uh, familiar with Capstone, that is the essentially the basic indoc for new one-star officers in the military, correct?
2: Yes. It's uh, JPME-3 for for the one-stars.
1: Got it. So when you get selected for your first star, you have to uh, within the first year or so go through this capstone program, which is several months long. Uh, you're you're baked into a school with other baby one stars. Uh, there's travel involved. There's uh, you know knife and fork knife and fork school, and you know what to do, what not to do, how many margaritas machines you can have. Um, <laughs> Ouch! Yeah, I know that's hard to resist that one, yes. but um, yeah, so you'll be training uh, and and probably traveling with a, a whole bunch of the new flag officers in the in the military, correct?
2: That's the plan. Yes.
1: Yeah. Two year orders.
2: Two year orders. Correct.
1: All right. Well, we wish you good luck in that, and we uh, you'll be. Uh, working there at NDU with a lot of people who have written for proceedings uh, over the years. We've got, uh, you know, a, a great number of folks on the faculty, including Frank Hoffman, Lieutenant Colonel, Marine retired, uh, who writes for us all the time. Uh, so look him up and uh, we look forward. Hopefully you'll have some time in that tour uh, to continue to write for us, uh, whether it's officer development at the senior level or it's the future of, you know, Navy Marine Corps operations in the South China Sea. We look forward to what you uh, are going to bring to the table.
2: I greatly appreciate it. And thank you both uh, to you, Ward and Bill, for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, our pleasure, too. So that wraps it up. Uh, Our guest this week was Lieutenant Colonel Colin Smith. He wrote Corvette Carriers, a new littoral warfare strategy. It's in the June issue of Proceedings. Starts on pages 18 and 19. Remember, as always, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you here next week.